0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, my feet out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? We're <laughs> up and we can.
1: About four or five times more work than what we
0: anticipated, and the pilot is completely blocked on the Philly's frozen little bit. We have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has
2: landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 80 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now... Gemini 10 with John Young and Michael Collins On January 24, 1966, John Young and Michael Collins were selected to fly Gemini 10. At first, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin were selected as the backup crew. But, on March twenty first, 1966, after the deaths of Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, Lovell and Aldrin were eventually moved to the Prime crew for Gemini 12. Alan Bean and Clifton Williams were assigned to back up Gemini 10. Now let's learn a little bit about the Prime crew selected for Gemini 10. You probably recall John Young from Gemini 3. His biography was covered in episode 57. So let's concentrate on Michael Collins. Mike Collins was born on October 31, 1930, in Rome, Italy, where his father, United States Army Major General James Lawton Collins, was stationed. For the first 17 years of his life, Michael Collins called Rome, Oklahoma, Governors Island, New York, Puerto Rico, San Antonio, Texas, and Alexandria, Virginia home. While he was in Puerto Rico, he took his first plane ride aboard a Grumman Wigeon. After the United States entered World War II, his family moved to Washington, D.C., where Collins attended St. Albans School. His mother wanted him to enter into the diplomatic service, but he decided to follow his father, two uncles brother, and cousin into the armed services. He applied and was accepted to West Point Military Academy in New York, which had the advantage of being free of tuition and fees. In 1952, Collins graduated from West Point with a Bachelor of Science degree. He finished 185th out of 527 cadets. Collins chose the Air Force for his active service, for two reasons. First, the wonder of what the next 50 years might bring in aeronautics. And second, to avoid accusations of nepotism. His uncle, General Joe Collins, was the Chief of Staff of the United States Army at the time. Now at this time, the Air Force Academy was only in its initial construction phase and would not graduate its first class for several years. In the interim, graduates of the Military Academy, Naval Academy, and the Merchant Marine Academy were eligible for Air Force commissions. After entering the Air Force, Collins completed flight training at Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi, in the T-6 Texan. He then moved to San Marcos Air Force Base and James Connolly Air Force Base, Texas. His performance earned him a position on the Advanced Day Fighter Training Team at Nellis Air Force Base, flying the F-86 Sabres. This was followed by an assignment to the 21st Fighter Bomber Wing at the George Air Force Base, where he learned how to deliver nuclear weapons. Collins transferred with the 21st when he was relocated to Chamoun Simontay Air Force Base, France, in June 1954. During a NATO exercise in the summer of 1956, Collins was forced to eject from an F 86 after a fire started aft of the cockpit. He was safely rescued and returned to Chamoun Air Base, where he had to wait several hours to be treated because the base's flight sergeant had joined the search parties looking for him. Collins met Patricia Finnegan, his future wife, in an officer's mess. She was from Boston, Massachusetts and was working for the Air Force Service Club. After getting engaged, they had to overcome a difference in religion. Collins was Episcopalian, while Finnegan came from a staunchly Roman Catholic family. Collins' father had been raised a Catholic, but converted to Protestantism when he married. The rest of his family remained Catholic. After seeking permission to marry from Finnegan's father and delaying their wedding when Collins was redeployed to West Germany during the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, They married in the summer of 1957. Their first child was a daughter named Kate Collins. She was born in 1959 and became a successful actress. She's probably best known for her role in the soap opera All My Children. Eventually, the Collins would have three children. After Mike Collins was reassigned to the United States, he attended an aircraft maintenance officer course at Chanute Air Force Base, Illinois. He would later describe the school as dismal in his autobiography called Carrying the Fire, an Astronaut's Journey. Upon completing the course, he was posted to a mobile training detachment and traveled to Air Force Base's training mechanics on the servicing of new aircraft. With the help of his time as a member of the Mobile Training Department, Collins accumulated over 1,500 hours of flying, the minimum required for the U.S. Air Force Experimental Flight Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, California. He successfully applied and reported on August 29, 1960, becoming a member of Class 60C, which included future astronauts Frank Borman and Jim Irwin. Following months of intensive training, Collins was one of the few chosen for a position in fighter operations. As an interesting bit of trivia, at one time in his life, Collins was a heavy smoker, but he decided to quit in 1962 after suffering a particularly bad hangover. The next day, he spent what he described as the worst four hours of his life in the right-hand seat of a bomber, flipping switches while going through the initial stages of nicotine withdrawal. The turning point for Michael Collins in his decision to become an astronaut was the Mercury Atlas 6 flight of John Glenn on February twentieth, 1962 and the thought of being able to circle the Earth in 90 minutes. Collins immediately applied for the second group of astronauts that year. In order to raise their numbers, the Air Force sent their best applicants to a charm school. Medical, physical, and psychiatric examinations at Brooks Air Force Base, Texas, and interviews at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston followed. In mid-September, Collins found that he had not been accepted, something that was a serious disappointment, even though he did not really expect to be accepted. Collins still considers the second group of nine astronauts as the best group of astronauts ever selected by NASA. That same year, the U.S. Air Force Experimental Flight Test Pilot School became the U.S. Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School, as the Air Force tried to enter into the research of space. Collins applied for a new course offered into the basics of spaceflight. Other students included Charles Bassett, Edward Givens, and Joe Engel. Along with classwork, they also flew up to about 90,000 feet in F-104 starfighters. As they passed through the top of their huge arc, they would experience a brief period of weightlessness. Finishing this course, Collins returned to fighter ops in May of 1963. At the start of June of 1963, NASA once again called for astronaut applications. Collins went through the same process as with his first applications, though he did not take the psychiatric evaluation. He was at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas, on October 14th when Deke Slayton called and asked if he was still interested in becoming an astronaut. Charlie Bassett was also accepted in the same group, which would be known as the third group of astronauts. For the third astronaut group, training began with a 240-hour course of the basics of spaceflight. Fifty-eight hours of this was devoted to geology, something that Collins did not readily understand and in which he never became very interested. At the end, Alan Shepard, who was head of the astronaut office, asked the 14 astronauts to rank their fellow astronauts in the order they would want to fly with them in space. Collins selected David Scott as the number one position for who he would like to fly with. After this basic training, the third group were assigned specializations, with Collins receiving his first choice of pressure suits and EVA. His job was to monitor the development and act as something of a go-between for the astronaut office and the contractors. As such, he was annoyed when during the secretive planning of Ed White's EVA on Gemini 4, he was not even involved. In late June 1965, Collins received his first crew assignment, the backup pilot for Gemini 7. He was the first of the 14 to receive a crew assignment, though he would not be the first to fly. That honor went to David Scott on Gemini 8. Collins' never rated himself with the super-athletes of the NASA Astronaut Corps like his fellow backup crew member, Ed White. But he still tried to keep in shape, especially in the run-up to Gemini 7 when he could have been called upon to spend 14 days in space. After the successful completion of Gemini 7, Mike Collins was assigned to the prime crew of Gemini 10 with John Young. With the biography complete, we will now continue where we left off on the previous mission. Immediately after Gemini 9A, Deputy Administrator Siemens expressed his dissatisfaction with results and the way missions were being handled. Although the flight, ground, and operations crew performed well in what they did, the achievements fell far too short of mission objectives. Siemens wanted a mission review board set up. He listed several items for such a group to study. First, corrective measures for the Atlas Agena failure. Second, the guidance update problem that delayed the launch two days. Third, the shroud incident. And fourth, the suit environmental control difficulties. He wanted the board to make sure that objectives and alternatives were carefully selected well in advance of launch. In response to Siemens' demands, Mueller established the Gemini Mission Review Board with his deputy, James C. Elms, as chairman. The board first laid out ground rules for drafting recommendations for each of the remaining Gemini missions. Benefits for Apollo and for science and technology were weighed against risk to the crew. Mission planning policies were examined as well. They considered things like, Was too much being programmed into a mission or Was too little being programmed into a mission? With Gemini 10 scheduled for July 18th, planning for that flight was nearly firm. The board did measure mission objectives against the new ground rules, but there was neither time nor opportunity for more than minor changes. Gemini 10, like Gemini 8 and 9, was a complex flight with multiple objectives. The primary objective was to rendezvous and dock with the Gemini Agena target vehicle that was scheduled to launch the same day as Gemini 10. The secondary objectives included rendezvous and dock in the 4th orbit, and to perform a second rendezvous with the Agena left over from the Gemini 8 mission. You may recall that the Gemini 8 Agena was in a very high orbit, so in order to reach the orbit of the Gemini 8 Agena, the Gemini 10 Agena propulsion system would be used to boost the Gemini capsule and astronauts up to the higher orbit. So this mission would have a rendezvous with two separate Agena. One launched for this mission with Gemini 10, and the other a passive target left over from Gemini 8. Using the Agena's main engine to propel the docked Agena-slash-spacecraft combination to high altitudes had been hotly debated on two previous missions. But when the Atlas Agena failed for Gemini 9A on May 17, 1966, the time for discussion was passed. Neither Gemini 8 nor Gemini 9A had provided the hoped-for experience of firing the Agena's main engine while it was docked to a spacecraft. So, It had to be done on this mission. Additional secondary objectives for the Gemini 10 mission were to conduct an EVA, practice docking, perform 14 experiments, perform system evaluation on bending mode test, perform dock maneuvers, static discharge monitoring, post-dock Agena maneuvers, reentry guidance and to park an Agena target vehicle in a 352-kilometer orbit. When astronaut John Young first heard about the dual rendezvous plan, he thought they must be out of their minds. Young had two concerns. Could he slow down the docked Gemini capsule and Agena vehicles and stop them in time to keep from crashing into the Gemini 8 Agena? Jiminy 8's Agena, having run out of electrical power, was dead in space, with no radar transponder or other apparatus to help find it. Young wondered if he could even find the old Agena using only optical equipment. Young recalled, quote, We hadn't worked on any of these procedures. The problem With an optical rendezvous, is that you can't tell how far away you are from the target. With the kind of velocities we were talking about, you could not really tell at certain ranges whether you were opening or closing. Young was also concerned that they didn't have an EVA program, but that soon changed. Mike Collins was assigned to do experiments retrieve packages from both the spacecraft and the passive target, test a zip gun, and visit an unstabilized vehicle, which was the Gemini 8 Agena. The backpack was eliminated for Gemini missions 10 and 11 and replaced by a 15-meter umbilical to supply oxygen and electrical support. Deciding what to do was only the beginning, How to do it was the bigger challenge. The second part of the double rendezvous with the passive Agena was particularly tricky. Agena 8, like all Earth orbital vehicles, had been precessing above and below the equator on its orbital path. With no help from a dead target possible, the Gemini 10 Agena and spacecraft would have to be launched at very precise times. Suppose circumstances delayed the launches. It had happened before, more often than not. The mission planners would have to come up with a new set of numbers in a hurry. With events so closely related, delay or failure at any point threatened all objectives of the flight. While shaping the Gemini 10 mission, for dual rendezvous, the planners decided to give the crew some helpful experience in onboard navigation using optical equipment, charts, and the spacecraft computer. The crew would join its first target in the fourth orbit. Mission sequence was the next consideration. When should the dual rendezvous take place? The second day or the third day? Mission planners eventually decided that the second day should be devoted to experiments, the third to chasing the passive target. This in itself appeared to create a conflict of objectives. Although Agena 10 was needed to carry the spacecraft to the second target, many of the planned experiments could not be performed while the vehicles were docked. About 50 people kicked this problem around at a trajectories and orbits meeting on April 28, 1966. Obviously, the launch dates would have to be jockeyed to get the best phase relationship between the spacecraft and the target for both the dual rendezvous and the experiments. Even assuming that both launches went as planned, planning the second rendezvous was an exacting task. The North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, at Colorado Springs had kept track of Agena-8's whereabouts ever since it ran out of electrical power. To begin the rendezvous, the docked Gemini-10-Agena-10 combination should first go into a large elliptical orbit. Two hundred and ninety-eight kilometers at perigee and seven hundred and fifty-two kilometers at apogee. After six revolutions to judge phase relationships, Agena Ten would then maneuver down to an approximate three hundred and ninety-eight kilometer circular orbit near Agena 8's space lane, as reported by NORAD. In addition. The high-altitude aspect of the flight raised its usual qualms. Although the Gemini Project Office no longer resisted the use of the big Agena engine while the vehicles were docked, McDonnell did not like the idea of the vehicles passing through so many high orbits, which might affect a safe emergency re-entry if the retro rockets did not perform as needed. There was also the South Atlantic Radiation Zone to be considered. In a trajectories and orbits meeting at the end of June 1966, the maximum acceptable altitude for dual rendezvous was set at 298 by 1,065 kilometers, based on radiation constraints and actual radiation levels measured in 1964. But the decision to use Agena for docked maneuvers had already been made, and any misgivings had to be laid aside. After careful study, the planners concluded that an emergency re-entry from an elliptical orbit with a perigee of 298 kilometers could be made, even if only three out of the four retro rockets fired. And they plotted the spacecraft's orbital track with great care to avoid the heavy radiation patches. With the memory of past flights still fresh, when no one had been sure what target, if any, would be waiting, NASA made alternate and contingency plans for Gemini 10. If the target vehicle for this flight did not reach orbit, the mission would be renamed 10A, and the spacecraft would be launched into a 162 by 385 km orbit to rendezvous with the Agena 8 on the 16th revolution. The alternate plan also covered experiments, extravehicular activity, and systems tests. Now we move forward to launch day. After the permission review, the traditional meal, and the ritualistic suiting up, Young and Collins left the crew quarters on July 18, 1966 for Pad 19 to begin the most complex manned flight so far. They had been awakened at noon for a 5.20 p.m. liftoff when a 35-second window offered the best chance for rendezvous with the two Agenas. But of course, the Atlas Agena was supposed to launch first. Here's the audio coverage of the Atlas launch.
0: Control, the Agena destruct system has been armed. We're at T-minus two minutes and counting. Liquid oxygen tanking has been secured. Those vents are closed. T-minus one minute, 46 seconds and counting. control T minus 1 minute 38 seconds in counting the ignition system has been armed we will be ready to turn on the sequencer at the na- 18 second mark in the countdown now 1 minute and 26 seconds and counting back at Launch complex 19 astronauts John Young and Mike Collins getting reports on the uh, status of the countdown but they will not be able to see the launch T minus 1 minute 13 seconds and counting vehicle now is completely on internal power as we come up toward the one minute mark g minus 60 seconds and counting g minus 60 the helium supply that pressurizes the vehicle is now on internal power g minus 50 seconds and counting minus 40 seconds and counting for most of the remainder of the time the launch vehicle test conductor in complex 14 will be looking at a series of ready lights on his console they will turn from amber to green as the automatic sequencer clicks off the various events now coming up on 25 seconds and counting T minus 20 seconds and counting T minus 19 18 we have the automatic sequencer in now 15 seconds and counting Gaming aiming toward ignition at 4, T-minus 10,
1: seconds, plus 50 seconds, and the flight director chain checks with rain safety. He says we look good. One minute, six seconds. Maximum dynamic pressure for the Atlas. One minute, 20 seconds. One minute, and 35 seconds, and we have completed now a 20, 30 second period of steering, uh, which went very nicely. about 20 miles, and we're about 25 miles downrange. Marked two minutes. Coming up on booster engine cutoff, and Flight Dynamics says everything looks good to him. Miko, two minutes, uh, 15 seconds into the flight. Vico programmed at two minutes, 11 seconds. It looked like it occurred right on the mark. The booster engines have dropped away. The 57,000-pound thrust sustainer now driving the v- Five seconds. Four minutes, 26 seconds. occurs. After the separation sequence there's a 52-second coast until the primary secondary propulsion system lights off on the Agena and approximately a little more than one minute later we should have primary propulsion uh, light off on the Agena We're five minutes and 20 seconds and we look good in all respects minutes 50 seconds and now we've got the secondary propulsion system has come in. The small thrusters ignited right on schedule 6 minutes 5 seconds we've got. The primary propulsion system has ignited on schedule at uh, 6 minutes, 10.2 seconds. Flight Dynamics has confirmed the engine start on the Agena engine, the big engine. This burn is to carry a little more than 3 minutes, with uh, shutdown occurring at 9 minutes, 16 seconds into the flight. Shroud separation. This event was to take place at 6 minutes 20 seconds. We're now at 6 minutes and 50 seconds. Altitude 155 nautical miles, and we're 700 miles downrange. 7 minutes 10 seconds into the flight. 8 minutes and 3 seconds into the flight. And we're approximately 1 minute away from uh, the Agena engine shutdown. Minutes 40 seconds, Agena reports a little intermittent, uh, some intermittency on the telemetry signal. But it's generally continuing a good, healthy signal. The Agena now leveling out at the 161 mile mark. We've got cut off on the primary propulsion system. And now we await a report from Flight Dynamics. Advises that uh, the cutoff looked nominal in all respects to him, the flight dynamics officer. Commands now being sent to the Agena to disable the command destruct system receivers aboard.
2: The Atlas lifted its payload towards space at 3:39 p.m., just a few seconds late. The Agena reached a 161-mile circular orbit as planned, with the successful launch of Atlas-Agena. We are good to go with the launch of the Gemini 10 spacecraft. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.